Hello, and welcome to the Stakes, the small thermal exhaust port right below the main port of politics, news, and social justice in the year 2016. From our Los Angeles studio, I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News for MTV News. Coming up on the show today, Meredith Graves reflects on Hillary Clinton's historic nomination as presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. Anna Marie Cox speaks to Atlantic senior editor David Frum about the GOP's continued path towards self-destruction. Jamie Fuller brings us the story of Donald Trump's unscheduled appearance in a Virginia bathroom. And our poet-in-residence, Marcus Ellsworth, celebrates the importance of immigrants in America. But first, Jamil Smith and Doreen St. Felix reflect on the passing of Muhammad Ali. Let's get to it. On Friday, June 3rd, America lost a legend, as Muhammad Ali passed away at the age of 74 after a long battle with Parkinson's disease. MTV news writer Doreen St. Felix and senior national correspondent Jamil Smith each wrote about how the boxer changed their lives. And today in our New York studio, they reflect on Ali's life and legacy. Doreen, we have got to stop meeting like this. Jamil, every time a black person dies, Every time a black come, man dies, yes. that's true. We come into the studio. Oh gosh! I mean, last time it was Prince, of course, and mm-hmm. now Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. dead at the age of seventy-four. Over the weekend, um, you know, we all got the phone alert at about twelve fifteen, and I know immediately I was like, I got to write something, and I know that you wrote something as well. Um, basically, I just want to get into what you what you got into because I thought like no one else touched upon this one kind of forgotten chapter of his life, uh, this Cassius X moment that he had, this moment that transitioned between Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about not only what you wrote but why you decided to focus on that? Absolutely. So for me, it actually begins with a class on black theology that I took when I was an undergraduate. And our professor, who was actually an acolyte of Cornell West's when he was a kid, Uh. (laughs) take that with what you will. But he, you know, taught us basically about the spectacle of Malcolm X in the 60s. And that's not something that you necessarily learn decades later when you're studying a legend. It's all about the full narrative of that person. And so he used particular moments, one of the ones that you know, made the biggest impression on me was Malcolm X's relationship with Muhammad Ali to show us the nuances and vicissitudes of this man's life. And so that's something that I had, you know, special like nuanced knowledge of Mm -hmm. um, before this all happened. And then in my research, I found out that there had actually been a book written on their relationship and it's called Blood Brothers and it came out in February of 2016. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you know what, let me read this book. Let me read Muhammad Ali's second autobiography called The Soul of a Butterfly. And let me try and parse this very quick three-week moment in this man's life, as opposed to doing what you did so incredibly in your piece in the middle of the night, right? Yeah, it was in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep. You couldn't sleep. Yeah. I mean, his his death... really I mean I'm first hit me as a sports fan my father's the kind of guy who keeps old fights on videotape uh, and we watched them when I was a kid not just to say like wow this guy was a great fighter or look at this punch or let's relive this cool moment it was more about 
teaching a lesson. My father's always about teaching a lesson through yeah. through sports. So what we used to watch was uh, one of the fights we used to watch was Rumble in the Jungle, which was the 1974 fight that Ali had. He's 32 years old. He goes to Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, to fight George Foreman, who's basically the Mike Tyson of his era mm-hmm. in his prime. I mean, it wasn't simply the Joe Frazier dynamic where white folks picked Joe Frazier because he was against Muhammad Ali. No, George Foreman was an American hero, mm-hmm. you know, a gold medalist. So this is a guy who is 24 years old, immense punching power, and Ali is going to fight this man seven years, he's seven years younger than him in Zaire at four in the morning. And <laughs> <laughs> just to make, you know, it was 10 p.m. Uh, here in the East Coast in the States. So the point is, I used to watch this fight and watch Ali's strategy in this fight, which was simply just to get beat up, to simply use his defenses and let Foreman punch, punch, punch. And what Ali eventually did, long story short, in the seventh round, Foreman just got tired. And his arms were like wet noodles hitting Ali. (laughs) And eventually Ali just knew his moment had come. Bop, bop, bop. Bop, bop, five punches, and that was it. And then Foreman starts staggering like a, <laughs> like, like a wino and falls onto his back on the canvas, and that's it. And everybody knows, knows it's it. And Ali, who wasn't supposed to win this fight, a lot of people actually feared for his life when he took the wow, fight. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, they thought that Ali might actually get killed in the ring. Mm-hmm. That's how powerful Foreman was. Ali used this rope-a-dope strategy, which he coined the term after the fight, he used the rope-a-dope strategy to, to, to win. And I, what I learned from that was not simply like, okay, the best way to win at boxing is to let your opponent punch you until he gets tired. It's about enduring abuse and enduring the, uh, the hard times, but with a purpose. You know, patience with a purpose. Mm-hmm. That really was like, I thought like as a black man in America and as, then as a young boy learning to be a black man in America, I understood that, you know, gosh, you know, there are a lot of folks that endure so much racism, so much hatred, so much poverty, so much oppression. And it seems like it's almost for nothing. And Ali showed, look, you can endure these things, but have a strategy as you're enduring them. Absolutely. To win. Strategy not just to get through it, but to win in the end. Yeah, it's like he had a panoramic view of his life. In some ways, he almost felt, I know it's kind of corny to say, but it felt that he was prophetic the way that he lived his life, especially for me and my research with doing my piece, reading about how he was seen as such a, he interrupted basically boxing style in the early 60s when he started. So this kid's 18 years old, he's going to the Olympics, he's black, and he's fighting by not fighting, which I think kind of predicts what you talk about in this 1974 fight. And so when he wins the Olympic gold medal in 1960, all the sports commentators and the sports writers are absolutely baffled and then they feel disrespected by the fact that he's evading punches and that he's tiring this uh, Polish fighter out. And then I think for me, what I really wanted to illuminate with respect to his coming to his faith is that it wasn't just something that he did, you know, quickly, like in 1960, 1964. You have a received narrative that is Muhammad Ali was famous, the Nation of Islam was famous, and he wanted to basically associate himself with something that was, you know, as anti-American as that 
as could exist during that time period. Right. But it actually started in the late 50s. This kid was really intrigued by this faith. He always felt a little bit not at home, both within his family and also within Louisville. And he started going to these meetings and he was both recruited, but also sought um, not only the Muslim faith, but the community of men that had been you know, built around it. Mm-hmm. And so Malcolm X ends up being not only a mentor, but also just a friend to somebody who seemed like he didn't need any friends. Right. You know, at the height <laughs> of his boasting, Muhammad Ali was singular. But behind all that, in private spaces, he was really cultivating a relationship that would actually affect his political radicalism in the later part of that decade. But, you know, the sad story is they end up not being friends anymore because of Malcolm X's, you know, move away. That's the biggest euphemism I could use from the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad um, in particular. And then Ali, of course, later on expressed regret for that, uh, the dissolution of that friendship, right? Yeah. And it's funny because there's actually two Muhammad Ali autobiographies. The first one came out in 1975, actually, right after he... Uh, That was a good year. Yeah, it was a pretty good year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, that's after he had been banned from boxing for refusing uh, the draft in the late 60s. And he came back and he won this incredible fight. And then basically at the request of Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, he puts out this autobiography that was edited by a young Toni Morrison. Oh. And within it, you don't see that regret. It's all boast. It's all bombast. It's all this man at the height of not only his boxing career, but also, you know, he has become the leader of the fraternity that he wanted to be a part of. He's so much more complicated than the figure of like indomitable resolve that he's right. getting painted as right now. He had doubts, he had nuance, he had all these things. Yeah, and also, I mean, he made mistakes. I am struck by how this man, who's just to me, one of the most, the ultimate individual was Muhammad Ali. You know, yeah. he stood apart from everybody in the ring, outside of the ring, in the realm of politics. He stood apart and stood apart from the U.S. government uh, when it tried to draft him into uh, into service in Vietnam. And yet he was always drawn to groups, you know, drawn to Nation of Islam, drawn to the community of fellow black sports heroes at the time. Bill Russell, Jim Brown, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, mm-hmm. who was then at Lou Alcindor. Um, you thinking about all these different um complexities of the man and I think that you know I think we're starting to get better at as a as a society when people like this pass is to assess them for who they actually were and with all their complexities with all of their various different facets and Muhammad Ali is a test case of that I mean he is an incredibly complicated person an incredibly complicated figure I mean think about his relationships with women I mean it's you know it's certainly not um you know, something that you would think is like, okay, this is this is a good thing about this guy. <laughs> you know, he what has I mean? a dubious track record, <laughs> right? And so, but at the same time, you know, later in life, he becomes you know an entirely different public figure mm-hmm. with uh, with suffering from Parkinson's. I want to pivot to something that our colleague Ezekiel Kweku wrote for the website on MTBnews.com just about how free of a man that he was. Um, and that's one of the things that immediately came to mind after his death to me. It was like, this was probably the freest black man I've ever seen mm-hmm. in public or private life. 
like it's one thing to be free. It's one thing to think of yourself as a free black man in this world. And it's another thing to use your celebrity to make sure that everybody understands just how free you are. Mm -hmm. And I think Ezekiel hits that point wonderfully in his in his column. And I wondered that are there any modern heirs to that? I mean, I, what a question. I, when I think about, and I don't necessarily want to limit this to obviously black men, because I mean, I'd certainly say, you know, with regards to, you know, singers, I mean, you think about Beyonce, think about, um, you know, we talked about Chance the Rapper, we think about people who are free to be themselves. Um, I can't think of anybody who's still that much, that bold a figure. But yet also, you know, using his celebrity to make a point for all of us. You know what? I'm going to float a theory here. Yes. I think that the cultural bulldozing somebody like Muhammad Ali did during his life ended up creating a pathway for people to be free in other quieter ways. And so one thing you know, to make this point, we could talk about aesthetics. The man was so pretty. He told you <laughs> every day that he was the prettiest man alive. And that ends up being the genesis of black beauty speech. You know, the whole 70s, like black, black is beautiful, all of that. He was doing that before. And now there's a lot of criticism that argues that black women in particular, when they call themselves beautiful in public spaces, it is a political act. So I think that what has happened is that he set so many examples and people have been kind of like picking and choosing which one works with them. Um, so I don't think that there's anybody who encapsulates how public he was with um, all of the ways that he was radical. But I do think that there are people who are taking the quieter ways, you know, around beauty, around athleticism uh, to, to evidence themselves as black people who are unafraid and who are free. Yeah. And one thing, other thing I wanted to mention um, was his humor. Yeah. Uh, you touched upon it with, uh, there's a story that's being circulated now where um, apparently the Reverend Al Sharpton uh, arranged a call between uh, the champ and Cam Newton on Cam's birthday. Oh, and wow, I didn't he know told, that. He told Cam that uh, he's uh, almost as pretty <laughs> as he was. <laughs> so you can imagine, I mean, this is a man who could, you know, of course, barely speak. Barely, you know, physically speak, but his voice still carried through. And I, I mean, my, any you ask anybody who ever met him in person. My mother met him in person in the '80s, and he made a joke about levitating, and he said, "I can levitate," and I stand right, and he just stood up on his toes. <laughs> you know, like he knew it was corny. You know, you might excuse it almost as like dad humor, yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was still something I think functionally that helped keep him alive. You know, I mean, he struggled for decades with Parkinson's, a lot longer than a lot of people make it with that disease. Mm -hmm. And yes, yeah, of course, he had resources to do so. But at the same time, humor, I think, is is an essential part of his individuality, his freedom. Yeah. And um, if you haven't read the autobiography, The Soul of a Butterfly, anybody who's listening, I really encourage you to read it. You'll see a man who is certainly, you know, he's in the twilight of his life, but he still is as powerful and active and animated as he was um, during his heyday. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jamil. Thank you, Doreen. That was MTV News writer Doreen St. Felix in conversation with senior national correspondent Jamil Smith.
Hillary Clinton made history this week by becoming the first woman to clinch the presidential nomination for a major political party. And as with all politicians of her echelon, with that elevation comes a bracing dose of inner conflict for the rest of us. MTV News correspondent Meredith Graves shares an op-ed reflecting on the upcoming election. Imagine for a moment, if you will, how surreal it feels to be Hillary Clinton right now. I'll wait a second while you put on your 3D glasses of pure evil. Imagine living her whole life, doing all the things she's done, from serving two very active terms in dealing with a riotous whitewater subpoena as first lady, surviving the unbelievable hurt and stress and humiliation of being an unfortunate and incidental player in a sex scandal that reached the upper echelons of global government, becoming the first female senator to represent New York, then Obama's secretary of motherfucking state, then finding herself responsible for the aftermath of the Benghazi attacks that left two high-ranking U.S. government officials and two CIA contractors dead, leaving the Obama administration after his re-election to focus on what would inevitably become her second run for the presidency. After all this, after everything you've done, everything you've suffered through, every incredibly disastrous and harmful government issue that you ever bore witness to or Lord knows participated in, and every international outcry you caused, you find yourself at 68 years old, the first ever real deal totally decided it's on female presidential candidate for a major party, like ever in history. Then Imagine that the trade-off for being the first female presidential candidate to emerge from a major party primary in history is having to go up against that guy. From one particular perspective, literally nothing could be more insulting. Because no matter how you feel about her age, menopausal status, marital history, email server, foreign policy tragedies, choice in hot sauce, blazer budget, or her tendency to continually talk about, quote, a woman's right to choose instead of just being like abortion access on demand without apology— Hillary Clinton is, unequivocally, undoubtedly, and don't you dare fucking at me about this, the only person amongst the remaining presidential hopefuls who is even vaguely qualified in any real way to be the president of the United States. If you close your eyes and cross your toes and squint hard enough to maybe sort of believe for a second that we are actually living in a democratic two-party citizen voter-run country under a transparent government that only has our best interests in mind, with the president, who we the people chose, who has the most power of anybody, serving as the head of the whole shebang, she's all we've got. And she definitely, definitely knows this. She's known it all along. And she is definitely definitely had to downplay that so as not to look like a bitch for the duration of the election, at least until that tangerine and a toupee got done casting mad creatures against every other possible Republican candidate. Donald Trump is literally in no way qualified to be the president, other than his still probably limited understanding of how the country actually works as one nation under Unilever, Nestle, and the curious relationship between big business and the privatization of prisons. And as we found through such glorious clusterfucks as Trump University and his many failed businesses, Donald Trump is barely qualified to do the jobs he made up for himself. Plus, he reads his neon on camera and is a lech for his own daughter. If this was Game of Thrones, he'd be a shoe-in. But it's motherfucking not. It's literally the presidential election, and he's never had a chance, and he's not going to win. But neither is Bernie Sanders. Literally, at no point, was there an actual chance that Bernie Sanders would win this election. 
I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you should have known this when Bernie himself started to elucidate for the American public how the U.S. government actually works. He is fully aware that the electoral system is to democracy as a fleshlight is to actual sex. It makes you feel like you're doing something active, but really, you're just fucking yourself. The role of president as it stands today entails a high level of participation in the rapid destruction of everything we hold dear as sentient beings. Did I want Bernie Sanders to be the president? Hell yes, I sure fucking did. Sign me up for any socialist utopia where Zizek and Elizabeth Warren could sit on the same committee. Was it going to happen? No. For the same reason that you don't get hired at Chipotle if your application is all about how you're going to radically reform the way the burrito assembly line works. It's not what they're looking for. And with the U.S. government looking as sus as Chipotle did during last year's E. coli outbreak, though I would put money down that E. coli has a higher approval rating than the U.S. government in the year of our Lord 2016, everybody with two brain cells to rub together can guess that the people who actually appoint the president are looking for progressive in the streets, drone strikes in the sheets. It's that perfect mix of millennial-friendly outward-facing stump speech fuckery and pure unadulterated private evil that Hillary has in spades, and which was nothing if not reinforced by Katy Perry's celebrity endorsement. Hillary is the I kissed a girl of progressive politics. You're trying and failing in public, but at least you're trying, and it all serves as a nice distraction from whatever the fuck you're actually doing behind the scenes. So yeah, Hillary is probably known from day one. It's like the scene in The Hunger Games when everybody gets their first look at everyone they're going to have to kill to survive. Can you imagine how she must have felt looking at Jeb Bush and Donald Trump and fucking Ben Carson for the first time? Can you imagine how many nights she's caught herself after a glass of wine staring at a wall, pushing her tongue against the roof of her mouth to keep from screaming, bored out of her mind, knowing that she just has to lay in wait for all the terrible idiot men to go away before she can just sort of step into the role she's pretty much had secured since she lost to Obama the first time? Every I love Mexicans tweet. Every populist podium sparrow, every hand-spun, grammatically infuriating protest sign that referenced the fact that Jimmy Cupcakes from West Jesus won't vote for somebody whose husband fucked somebody else once or a million times or however many times that prison-loving saxophone sucker got away with allegedly violating his female employees and advisors. She was just there, waiting, with her lizard person eyes and her defiant chromosomes and her exceptional history as a participant in America's real-life legal system with all its flaws and plots and subplots and history of violent capitalism and globalization that threatens to end life on this planet as we know it. And here we are. So cheers to you, Hillary. You are the first female presidential nominee. I have no doubt that you will be the first female president as well. And you're definitely fucking evil as hell. Let me stress, you are the epitome of establishment evil, cozied up in a tax loophole with the family of a steak-shilling beauty pageant enthusiast who uses a cartoon tumbleweed for a wig. But you will be the first female presidential nominee, and you will be the first female president. And no matter how evil you are or how much of a distraction the rest of those fucking morons were during this otherwise boring and unremarkable election process, no matter what countries you bomb or which banks you get to second base with, no matter if you set off all the nukes we've got as a nation and turn this whirling garbage marble into a dusty fart of powdered civilization drifting peacefully out into the Milky Way where matter can neither be created nor destroyed, you have broken a huge barrier. And that is dope. It's really, really dope. <laughs> That was MTV News correspondent Meredith Graves in New York. 
Senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox continues her series, Some of My Best Friends, which explores the relationships that cross ideological lines and examines what personal relationships can do for politics. This week, she talks to David Frum, senior editor at The Atlantic and chairperson of the Board of Trustees of Policy Exchange, a British think tank. I would say up until a few days ago, (laughs) the Republican Party seemed to kind of have sighed deeply and swallowed some, you know, bile and decided that they were going to coalesce around Trump. And you write, those of us who live and socialize among conservatives every day discover that another friend has, with greater or lesser reluctance, accepted the leadership of the bombastic businessman and reality television star to those of us who cannot still imagine Trump as a nominee or president, this movement towards him among our friends, relatives, and colleagues is in varying degrees baffling and sinister. So I, I actually am just curious, is that, does it feel really baffling and sinister to you? Those are some strong, that's a strong combination of words. Uh, I've had this feeling a lot since 2009 um, during the Tea Party days where um, I found myself going in one direction and found everybody else I knew going in a different direction. The difference in what's happening in 2016 and what happened in 2009 was in 2009, I had no doubt about the sincerity of what was happening to my friends. Um, I, might be, I might disagree with it. I might be alarmed by it. But there was no question they genuinely believed that President Obama was a dangerous radical who was leading the country towards socialism and he had to be stopped by any means necessary. And that a lot of things that you might not have been willing to contemplate in the past were acceptable because that was the only way to save the country. What is different now, and this this is maybe a Washington difference from the rest of the country, is among those who are signing up for Donald Trump, there are very few true believers. Maybe in, in the Washington community, maybe none. They're doing it anyway. They, and it's not just always for cynical motives. I mean, there are things they believe in. They believe in the party. Uh, they believe in protecting other people from, from damage. I mean, I think this is the calculation Paul Ryan does every day, which is Paul Ryan's seat is safe and Paul Ryan's future is safe. But if he says something negative about Trump, the party cracks and then a lot of at-risk Republicans lose their seats. And he has a responsibility mm-hmm. to them. And so this has been complicated by, you know, the most, it's not even the most recent thing Trump said, but the most recent thing that we have decided to start talking about, um, which is his uh, accusations that the judge in his Trump University case is of Mexican heritage and therefore um, biased and should not fit to preside over the case. This, for some reason, seems to have prompted a level of criticism among even those who have... Uh, otherwise endorsed Trump, Paul Ryan being the best example. Why do you think this is something that tripped the trigger? Why is it? Why is this different um, yeah. from the other various outrages? Mm-hmm. I think two two reasons. The first is this is an outrage that gives us a glimpse of how Donald Trump would use the powers of the presidency. Mm-hmm. And if the president of the United States is mocks and derides the disabled, I mean that's terrible. That's awful, awful behavior. But the Americans with Disabilities Act will still be there. As as rude and boorish as a president may be, the rights of the disabled wouldn't be in any danger because it's not within him to do anything about that. An attack on the integrity of the judiciary, however, it's not just disturbing, it's also threatening. Mm -hmm. Because the fact is the President of the United States will determine who who is appointed to the judiciary. Once appointed, 
Uh, he determines who is promoted, uh, that whether or not Judge Curiel moves from the district court to the court of appeals, that's a presidential nomination. Um, the president also has various ways to interfere with the work of the judiciary. The executive branch all the time can, is litigating, and it often loses, uh, as any frequent litigant does. Do you accept the judgments of the, of the judiciary when you lose, or do, uh, do you find some way to denounce them as illegitimate? What happens if this were an action brought against a President Trump? So it's, it's very alarming because it tells us what the presidency would be like in a way that few things before this happen. And the second reason it's different is when Donald Trump has said outrageous things in the past, ban Muslims from migrating to the United States. You may not feel this way, but a little bell rings in a lot of conservative heads. It goes like this. What, what he just said was wrong and offensive and objectionable. But it's also true that the official position on this is a lie that we have been asked to swallow. We've been told there is no connection between Islamic terrorism and Islam. That uh, that it is not true. That there is no difference between the behavior of one population and another. That all religions are equally people, and we don't believe that. So we don't like what Donald Trump just said. But at least it is a reaction against the organized lying that we perceive that we're on the receiving end of all the time from established institutions in our society. So Donald Trump has been a beneficiary of this. That's what conservatives mean when they say, well, at least he's not politically correct. They think that a lot of the things that we're, that we're told from you know, established sources are, are falsehoods. That, um, and here's someone who at least is not ascending to the falsehoods. Well, that's, yeah, I just have to jump in a little bit that that's something of a straw man. I mean, that's the perceived message. If you were to stop the typical Republican primary voter and say, really, all, all Muslims, Zalmay Khalilzad, our former ambassador to Afghanistan, you know, or, um, you know, the, the commander-in-chief of, uh, you know, the Jordanian Air Force, really? All of them? No, no, I don't mean that. Well, what do you mean? What I mean is I'm just sick and tired of, you know, President Obama saying, you know, every time there's one of these outrages saying this has nothing to do with Islam. Sick of that. Obviously, it has something to do with Islam. I don't know what, but something. So he, Donald Trump has benefited from that. In this case, to say of someone, I mean, everybody's parents or grandparents came from somewhere else. Uh, you can't be a judge uh, because of where your parents came from. And that really goes, that, there you are striking at something that is really fundamental um, and broadly shared across the whole country. And he's not tackling some kind of organized campaign of correctness that conservatives resent. It's, it, it's a little bit along the lines of, well, we, it's more than that he's just a racist. It's that he will take action on his racism, whereas before it was like, oh, he may be a racist, but, you know, we're not worried. And the idea, well, at least... We can, maybe we could surround him with really sober right. advisors. Right. Uh, maybe he'll behave differently when he's the nominee. Uh, that, that, that's clearly not true. He will be, if, if he behaves the same as the nominee as he did as a candidate, then he's going to behave the same as the president as he did as a nominee. Um, and it's pretty obvious at this point, no, um, it is an illusion to imagine that the advisors will be able to restrain him. And I want to bring this back to sort of the this problem of Paul Ryan in a way, because so we now have seen this behavior. It, it's alarming to people who were already alarmed. It's apparently alarming to people who had even convinced themselves they didn't need to be as alarmed. And But even Paul Ryan, who said that what Trump said is the definition of racist, went on to say that we can work with him. The courses of action for Paul Ryan here, to me, seem like there's, well, there's a few, but the ones I can yeah. think of are there's continuing to endorse but continuing to denounce because right. one assumes there's going to continue to be things to denounce um there's uh somehow withdraw an endorsement but don't 
but but make clear you'll still be voting for him, which is an odd position, but I think a, a legitimate one in some ways. Um, and then there's sort of saying that you won't even vote for him. Our different positions give us different duties. He is a party chief, um, and he's a leader of a group of people in a, who are in a very, very bad situation, and he has a duty to them. He has to try mm-hmm. to hold together the party, and he has to t- try to minimize uh, the losses that he can surely see coming for the party. Uh, and if he, so he doesn't have the luxury of saying all that he thinks, or no doubt thinks about Donald Trump, because the ticket will disintegrate, and then a lot of seats will be lost. Um, and a lot, and there are people to whom he has a duty. So he has to do it, his first job is to try to hold together the party as well as he can, and navigate it as a group through a very inhospitable terrain. He's fine, he's safe, um, but he has duties of care to others. I get that. And yet this moment in history for Republicans is a what did you do in the war, daddy yes. moment. And history will judge those who took the side of supporting this racist buffoon. I, th- if, if, I think if you shook Mick, Mitch McConnell awake in the middle of the night and said, what's mm-hmm. the for you, Mitch, what's the best possible outcome of this election? He would say Hillary Clinton presidency with Republicans keeping the Senate and House. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the best outcome. That's a better outcome than a Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. The problem is there's no way I can plan that outcome because everything I do to keep the Senate makes it more likely that Donald Trump will be elected. And everything that makes it more li- less likely that Donald Trump will be elected also makes it less likely that I keep the Senate. Um, and so the art that the challenge that is facing the McConnells and the Lions is they have to find some way to keep Trump out of the presidency uh, without shattering their party. Now, here's a question. Is the party worth saving? Parties are institutions. All institutions are worth saving, um, and they, they, they are integral to um, American democracy. And I would argue that one of the things that has made Donald Trump possible is the weakening of the party structure. Mm. I mean, you didn't get Donald Trumps in 1948. Um, almost every active duty Republican office holder, major donors, they all didn't want Donald Trump. And in 1940 or 1948, they'd have been able to stop him. And now they can't. And that is a sign of the weakness of the party. So if you say, is the party worth saving? If you don't, I think Donald Trump shows us what happens in a world without political parties. So yes, the party is worth saving. And in fact, parties are worth strengthening so they have better screens so that people who have not enough information as most primary voters don't have, but the characters of these random people who seek once someone's got a party brand, then people think they know about them. But these random people show up and want the support of the party, want to be on a ballot line. Who are they? There are professionals who know the answer to that question, and they should have more say in this process, not less. That's a great conservative answer, of course, that a party is worth saving. But um, there's another point in your piece that I think has been made a few different ways by a few different people, but you put it really clearly, which is that um, this problem of, of the party um, and that Republican turned into an identity, conservatism turned into an identity rather than an ideology. Explain that a little bit. I, I happened to hear a, a monologue by Rush Limbaugh a few months ago, and she was talking about Clarence Thomas and the accusations against him when the elder President Bush nominated to the Supreme Court. And um, Limbaugh said, I knew that these, ac- I didn't, I'd never met Clarence Thomas and I didn't know very much about him, but I knew the accusations couldn't be true because I knew he was a conservative and that his accuser was a liberal. And that was all I needed to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you think, really? That's what you need to know? <laughs> um, uh, human beings lie all the time. 
conservatives are human beings. Therefore, many conservatives are capable of telling lies. Many liberals are also, but merely belonging to some political grouping doesn't immunize you against the normal human frailties. But uh, that, that Limbaugh had the world so categorized. And, and, and how do you become a, when you say and do certain things, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a shirt you wear. And, uh, and then you, it's, or it's a club you join. And one of the things I'm, you know, just because in honor of the title of this podcast, a personal remark. So as you remarked, my answer on the party is very, I'm a person who thinks in a very conservative way, but uh, because of various experiences I've had, I am not recognized. I am out of the club. I'm not, a, I'm not a conservative in good standing anymore. And, and then you have this, this weird, and when, when that happens to you in this weird situation, which is actually intellectually on many, many issues, I see myself as more intellectually conservative than many of the people who are conservatives in good standing. But I'm not a member of the club because it's not about what you think or believe. It is about um, uh, certain mutual compliments you pay one another. Um, it's about certain things you agree to say, certain things more important that you agree to refrain from saying, um, certain things that we all know to be true, but that we agree not to speak aloud, um, certain people you pretend to admire, even though we all understand they don't deserve it. Um, mm. and, uh, and so the fact that then you may have very conservative ideas about the institutions of American politics, even very conservative ideas on all kinds of more hot button issues as I do, that doesn't make you, that may make you conservative, but it doesn't make you a conservative. And conversely, as we, see, as we see in Donald Trump, so long as you are a conservative, it doesn't matter how unconservative your thinking is. Queen Victoria's first prime minister, uh, Viscount Melbourne, um, had a great definition of cabinet government. He said, it doesn't matter what damn lie we tell, so long as we all tell the same damn lie. That was senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox in Minneapolis in conversation with David Frum, senior editor at The Atlantic and chairperson of the Board of Trustees of Policy Exchange. We've all imagined pictures in clouds and popcorn ceilings and board moments, right? Well, one Virginia man just saw Donald Trump in probably the most appropriate place, the bathroom tile near his toilet. MTV politics writer Jamie Fuller, who possesses an unparalleled radar for all weird election news, interviews Scott Wise, the director of interactive media at CBS6 in Richmond, Virginia, who first covered the story. Okay, Scott. So, like, the the first big question I had for you was, how on earth did you come across this story in the first place? The gentleman who saw Donald Trump in his bathroom floor tile emailed us a picture and his little description saying, "Guess what, guys? Just saw Donald Trump in the bathroom floor." Um, <laughs> he uh, when I called him, like stuff like that comes through uh, email or through social media tips. Um, you know, generally people kind of laugh or you know, someone will yell it out in the newsroom and it might get disregarded rather quickly. But uh, being on the web team, it's our responsibility to investigate those kind of claims pretty closely. Of course. Um, so, so when I called the gentleman, uh, he said that he actually emailed it to, a, to a, several stations in town and several news outlets, and I was the first person to call back. Um, so that's how we got the story. And I love the first sentence of your story, which I'll, I'll read it for our listeners. Clayton Linton was sitting on his toilet admiring his newly tiled bathroom floor when he first saw it. And of course, what he saw was that his newly installed bathroom tile uh, 
looked like Donald Trump. And I'm just trying to imagine what it was like for Clayton when he's just sitting there on the toilet, <laughs> looking at the ground, and he suddenly sees the man that he wants to be president staring back at him. Like, that has to be an you overwhelming know, moment. You know, Clayton, he's a he's an interesting gentleman. Um, it's kind of a sad story, actually. He has, he has lung cancer, and he's actually, he told me he was dying. So, I mean, the story, it's it's funny in one sense, and it's really kind of, you know, somber in another sense, but I wrote that lead line because it was interesting to me, um, and because that's kind of how he told me the story. It wasn't like I was embellishing it or trying to make fun of the guy. Um, that's kind of what he said, and when we went to interview him later for TV, that's exactly what he told us, uh, you know, with the camera in his face. So, um, you know, you write something one way, and people will read it, and they may laugh or make fun of the guy, but that's really the way he told the story, so um, hopefully, you know, People don't think that I was trying to make fun of the guy. No, no, no. I, I think that comes through. And if you watch the TV hit, too, it's it's clear that this man is just, like, incredibly excited about this, too, in, in a very genuine way. Exactly. And I think, you know, um, he he told our reporter who actually went down to interview him that he attempted to sell the tile on eBay to try to raise some money for his medical uh, care. But I guess eBay wouldn't let him sell it for one reason or another. It must be some kind of clause. Huh. There's definitely a, a market that has existed for things like this, but maybe maybe bathroom tiles aren't part of it. And, uh, you have later in the story that you talked to the company that installed the tile, and did they said you know it's my responsibility as a journalist <laughs> to get to get all sides of, of the course, story, not just one man's take on things. And uh, they said that this happens frequently that well, people like yeah, they said that basically because when. When he sent me the photo, like, I saw Donald Trump pretty clearly in the photo. So I wanted to make sure, I don't know, I don't know how those tiles are made or how they're distributed. So I just wanted to make sure that the image wasn't real. It wasn't really him. So the guy from the flooring company basically said, people see things in tile all the time, much like you might see something in a cloud, much like you might see something in a burnt piece of toast. Um, It's kind of whatever your mind sort of sees is what it sees. So he said it probably wasn't an actual image of Donald Trump that somehow got superimposed on this tile, but it was just a coincidence. So Donald Trump is coming to town June 10th, and the timing of this couldn't be better. We broke the story a couple days before, and uh, we're hoping that, that Trump can will invite Clayton up on stage with him or even make mention of him during the rally. Which was like another sad, uh, sad context for the story in that he held out hope that maybe Donald Trump's campaign would respond to him about this. Uh, you know, yeah, they haven't, they haven't. From what he told me yesterday, they haven't contacted him back yet. Mm-hmm. It's been a few days, but maybe, who knows, maybe Donald will, will make mention of him at the rally tomorrow. Maybe he'll get invited. Maybe he'll get some stage time. Mm-hmm. You know, we can only hope for the best for this, for this man. And uh, I don't know how much other research you did for this story, but... Uh, it's definitely, obviously, there's the stories about the Pope and the toast and all these other things, but there's lots of people who have seen presidential candidates in the things, too. There was this person who tried to sell their chicken nugget they found that was uh, three years old at that point that looked like George Washington. And there was actually a gag on Cheers for a while uh, where a character had a potato that he thought looked like Richard Nixon. So yeah, you know, so this is this is the thing in this culture. People people want to see what they want to see. I think it's great. You know, it's great. It's great that in this political climate where everything is so divisive and and can get really nasty, that we can have a story about bathroom tile that was might have been the biggest story in the country for about 
two and a half minutes yesterday. <laughs> um, I got like 30 retweets yesterday, man. It's huge. It's a huge <laughs> day for me. It was a sight to behold. We were all we were all happy that we were the ones that were able to, to break this big news to the country. Well, hopefully uh, this will get Clayton some attention for the things that he needs too. But thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much. Have a great day. That was MTV Politics writer Jamie Fuller in conversation with Scott Wise of CBS 6 in Richmond, Virginia. We're going to close things out this week with another piece from our very own Poet-in-Residence, MTV political writer Marcus Ellsworth out of Chattanooga. This week, Marcus was inspired by the I Am an Immigrant campaign and wrote a piece that celebrates Americans from other lands as a crucial component of the fabric of our nation. America has a short memory. We forget so quickly that most of us ain't from around here. That unless this land was stolen from your people with blood and fire and broken promises, you ain't from around here. Dig deep enough through most family histories and there will be stories of when and why, oceans wide, borders crossed, migrations cost, carrying only families yet to be, stories of immigrants yearning to be free, people who forge generations in the promise you will do greater things than I. I come from a family of immigrants, a woman who left Haiti to rarely if ever speak of where she was born, once her feet were on this shore, yet still spoke Creole, hoping the language would live on. Sadly, we've forgotten her mother's tongue. A man left France to start a new life, sacrificing his own name so that his children's children's children could sound more American, so we could belong here, so we forget a portion of our past. And, like so many others, we succumbed to American amnesia for the sake of survival. But we find artifacts where immigrants settled, in the architecture of the streets, in the food that we eat. For me, it's in the New Orleans drawl of Mama and y'all, calling loved ones share a little lanyap here and there, saying Pacone instead of I don't know because we don't know how many cultures Histories, traditions, struggles, and visions have truly made our America. The spirit of the immigrant is the soul of America. To stand up and say, I am an immigrant, is a proud act of reclamation. It is a reminder of who we are, where we come from. We choose to remember the hope of those struggling to be here, those who still believe America can be better, making us better just by being, by declaring, I am an immigrant, and the American dream is me. That's it for us this week on The Stakes. We'll be back next week with more. I'm Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.